Good morning, everybody. As always, I'm uh, particularly excited when we are starting a new sermon series. And today we're doing just that, and we're starting a new series looking at an Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah, which comes at a time in Israel's history which is crucial to the people of God. And it contains both wonderful eyewitness testimony as well as historical records which give us an amazing view and a sense as we read it of being right there with Nehemiah, this extraordinary man of God who was born almost probably about 500 years before Jesus, who was so real, who was so down to earth and yet so God-centered and so faithful that he gives us a wonderful example of what it looks like to live by faith. So hopefully we'll learn from him. So please do grab the church Bible if you can, um, or if you can look at it in your service sheet. Um, we will be turning to a couple of other passages briefly, um, and um, that will be to set the scene, to look a, li- look a little bit about the background and the context of this pivotal moment in the lives of God's people. So let's just briefly pray. Lord, I pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would help me to open up these words of Nehemiah's so that our hearts can be changed and we can draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we go into the text, um, I want to spend a moment briefly placing in history, in the biblical story, where Nehemiah sits so if you were to glance at, your, at the page numbers in your Bible, what you find is that Nehemiah is on page 484, and the Old Testament is 962 pages long. So you could be forgiven for thinking that Nehemiah comes halfway through the Old Testament. But actually, if you look at these three shelves which represent all the books in the Bible, starting at Genesis on the top left shelf and finishing at Revelation on the bottom right shelf, What what I'll show you is that it's a little bit different to that. Because it begins top left with those five orange-coloured books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, and... uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And um, which is called the Torah, the Jewish Torah. And is largely attributed to Moses. And then you have a whole bunch of books coloured blue... And these are essentially the history of Israel from the time when Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land right up to the end of Old Testament history. So Old Testament history ends with that right-hand, far-most right-hand blue book, if you like. And so Nehemiah is there where the arrow points and is almost at the very end of Old Testament history. So the other books that come after that that make up the Old Testament include five devotional books coloured purple of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And then, second shelf down, the pink and green books are the prophets. The pink books are the major prophets, the green books are the minor prophets. But all of those books, all of the ones that come after the blue books, were written during the historical period covered by those blue books which end almost end with Nehemiah. So Nehemiah comes right at the end of Old Testament history. So now let's just turn to the first um, chapter of Nehemiah 
And it says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And then it goes straight into eyewitness, first person eyewitness account. Nehemiah is speaking. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, before we continue, I want to show you a map of what's going on here, because I think it's helpful. This is a map of the Middle East in roughly 500 BC. On the left, you see the Mediterranean Sea, with the country of Israel is roughly the area covered by that thin green strip of next to the sea, with its capital, Jerusalem. Now, almost 100 years before Nehemiah was born, in 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire, under Nebuchadnezzar, had invaded Israel from the north, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and had carried off all the people who had any wealth or education into exile in Babylon. And Babylon, you can see, on the edge of that purple area to the right. Babylon, incidentally, was about 55 miles south of what we call Baghdad in Iraq today. Now, that journey into exile was a two-month, sorry, 1,000-mile trek through that green arc known as the Fertile Crescent because it was irrigated by the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. The Arabian desert to the south was completely impassable because it had no water whatsoever. You had to go around the long way through the green crescent. So fast forward about 60 years in 529 BC, the Persian Empire under Cyrus, which came from far east, that way, um, had, conquered, uh, had conquered the Babylonians. And the capital of the Persian Empire was the city of Susa, which you can see right on the right-hand edge of the screen. And today, the Iranian city of Shush stands on the ruins of Susa. So keeping that in mind, and fast-forwarding another several decades, we have Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah would have been born in Susa, son of an exile, and grown up in the comfort and the luxury and the relative security of the palace courts of the Persian emperors, now King Artaxerxes, who had superseded um, um, Cyrus. So, returning to verses 1 and 2, we can now place this particular moment with great accuracy in history. Because we're told that this is the month of Kislev, In the 20th year, that would have been the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And he says, I, Nehemiah, was in the citadel of Susa. So that sets the picture. Verse 2, he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Came from Judah. Three simple words, but we already know this is now about a 1,250-mile, probably three-month trek, something not likely to be undertaken. From Judah means that they had visited Jerusalem, which was the capital city of 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 the province of Judah. It had once been Israel's capital and the envy of the world. It had been immaculate. It had been beautiful. And so Nehemiah asks the returning travelers about news of the Jewish people and news of Jerusalem and the news isn't good. Verse 3 and 4, they said to me, 
Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And there is so much we can learn from just those two verses. Firstly, we learn that the exile of the Jews was over. It was a thing of the past. In fact, it's been over for some time. Unlike the Babylonians, when Cyrus uh, and the Persians had uh, invaded and conquered the Babylonians, they'd begun to allow the descendants of the Jewish exiles to return to their ancestors' homelands following the defeat of Babylon. But the news isn't good. The walls are broken down and the gates are nothing but charred ashes. But why is Nehemiah so upset about this? Remember, he's never known Jerusalem. He was born in Susa. He's heard probably his parents and grandparents talk about the great stories of triumph and tragedy. And he would have known that Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So why didn't he expect that that's what they'd find? Just a ruined city. There must be something else going on here. And to understand Nehemiah's reaction... We have to, to understand Nehemiah's reaction, we have to turn back to the preceding book of the Bible, the book of Ezra. So just hang on with me another couple of minutes because we've nearly finished the history lesson, okay? If you've got a Bible, flick back to page 472. And I'm just going to skim this, um, but here, here goes, page 472. It's the book of Ezra, chapter 1, and look at verse 2. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. So Cyrus, the conquering Persian king, had a calling from God to send the exiles back to rebuild the temple. And then chapter 2 lists all of the Jewish families who returned to Jerusalem. And in verse 64, you'll see that over 42,000 people returned from Jerusalem the Middle East, back to their homeland of Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 3, they rebuild the altar and they rebuild the temple. It's going well. Chapter 4, here it comes. They run into opposition. Some of the powerful local people in Judah who lived outside of Jerusalem had been profiting from the weak Jerusalem and they don't like the fact that... Jerusalem is being restored. They write a letter to King Artaxerxes, who superseded Cyrus. And just take a look at chapter 4, verse 12. This is the letter. The king should know that the people who came to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Note that. They're restoring the walls. And they go on to warn King Artaxerxes that if these returning Jews succeed in rebuilding the walls, then they'll rebel against Persia and he'll have a new enemy. And as a result of that letter, King Artaxerxes overturns the instructions from his predecessor, Cyrus, and puts the rebuilding project on hold permanently. So now let's turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is clearly upset that this vision that the exiles had, and which they thought was coming to fruition, of a restored Jerusalem, 
of God's city restored to its former glory had been scuppered. And Jerusalem still lay in ruins, a disgrace to all who passed her by. And that's why Nehemiah sat down and wept. I don't know if you have ever had a dream or a vision, an an idea of what things could be like in the future. Of what life could be like. A dream of some particular work or profession or ministry you'd love to be involved in or a dream of a future family of children, grandchildren, whether your own or fostered or adopted or a dream of a special place to retire to or a, a journey you'd like to undertake or maybe a course of study that you'd like to do. Eight and a half years ago, I had a dream, a vision of the Southcote community transformed by the love of Jesus. I wrote it down eight and a half years ago. I've still got it. I came to St. Matthew's seven years ago. And some aspects of that dream have been realised. Through the holiday clubs and kids' church, hundreds of children in this community over the last seven years have worshipped Jesus, have asked him to be their friend, have learned some of the great biblical stories. And we have no idea how those seeds will play out in the future, how they will take root and germinate in the future, but you can be sure some of them will. Through the pastoral care shown by many in the congregation here, there are people out in the community who have found comfort and healing and companionship and a listening ear, whose lives are better and richer because of God's people in this place. And as we heard last uh, Sunday... There are also many festival goers this year whose experience of the Reading Festival was lifted and perhaps rescued by the team of street pastors who gave up their time to help, and so much more besides. But many aspects of that original vision I had remain stubbornly unchanged, like those broken down walls of Jerusalem. So, what state is your dream in? How is your vision working out? Maybe you've realised it, or maybe it seems an impossibly long way off. But you know what? If you feel a little bit like Nehemiah, about like how he felt when he heard the report about Jerusalem's broken walls and the charred ashes, know this, we have a God who can change things. We have a God who can change things. And Nehemiah shows us what to do. Let's take a look what he did. First of all, he sat down and he wept. And this is a very important first step. It's so easy in life to run into some obstacles to our dreams and just assume that's it, that's the end. It's not going to happen. But Nehemiah shows us that if our dream is something that's on God's heart, then he will break our hearts for that thing if we will let him. 450 years later, Jesus would weep over the same city. He would weep over Jerusalem. Not the walls, but the people's hearts. But that just made him all the more determined to go to the cross. He wept outside Lazarus' tomb, but that gave him the confidence to call Lazarus back to life. Jesus' compassion was often the... The precursor, it often came before a powerful piece of ministry. Before he fed the 5,000. Before healing the sick. 
And I think if we allow God to break our hearts for something, then we know he will be with us in the endeavor which we're considering. God broke my heart and others' hearts for Southcote, which is why we came to St. Matthew's. God broke my heart for the children in Reading who are in care, which is why I've supported Home for Good and why we do respite foster care to encourage others to foster and adopt. What has he broken your heart for? What dream remains elusive like the broken down walls of Jerusalem? Allow him to break your heart and let the tears flow. Next we're told, Nehemiah mourned and fasted. You know, fasting is not popular for obvious reasons in our culture where we consume almost constantly throughout the day with meals and drinks and snacks. I don't normally go more than about an hour without making another cup of tea, if I'm honest. On our summer holiday, Kirsty and I won a prize for drinking the most tea while under sale. Beat that. <laughs> we constantly consume. Fasting is sacrificial. And it had become a regular discipline of the Jewish exiles. Daniel fasted in Babylon. And there are two main reasons for fasting. Firstly, its sacrificial nature is an antidote to our consumer society, to our worldliness. And so it has spiritual power in itself. Jesus fasted in the wilderness, which allowed him to overcome temptation and empowered him for ministry. But it also frees up the time that we would have spent eating lunch or dinner or whatever it is in order to spend that time in the presence of God in prayer. And in the Middle East, in Nehemiah's day, meals would have been a leisurely affair, an hour or two. So it certainly freed up plenty of time. And that leads us on to the final aspect of Nehemiah's reaction to the bad news of a shattered dream. And that is he turns to prayer. And this prayer that he prays is an extraordinary model of prayer for us today. If we could pray like Nehemiah, I think we would see many more spiritual breakthroughs and much more answered prayer. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is a formula. What I'm saying is that if we can spend the time with God such that we become people who naturally pray this way, then our hearts will be exactly where God needs them to be. So let me quickly run through the different aspects of Nehemiah's prayer. And he begins with worship. Between verses 5 and 11, Nehemiah exalts God as sovereign, as mighty, holy, loving, faithful, forgiving, attentive, merciful. He just pours out praise to God. Worship should always be our natural entry into a time of prayer and next he wants to be totally open and honest in his relationship with God and so he moves into confession and he acknowledges the many shortcomings of himself and his people he says I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family have committed against you confession is the way that we restore our relationship with God And then he turns to scripture, reminding God of of the great things he's done in the past. Remember the instruction, he says, that you gave your servant Moses, Nehemiah prays. And then he paraphrases Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 5 to make sure that he's on solid ground in what he's saying. 
Praying from scripture is so powerful and he reminds God of God's own word. Nehemiah's prayer is also offered in humility. Do you know he uses the word servant seven times in five verses about himself and his people. He approaches God as a servant with a servant's request. So he's not asking God to grant him favour concerning his own plans, but for God's plans. He's God's servant who wants to do God's will. And his prayer is relational. He appeals to God's heart. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then finally he finishes the prayer with a very specific request. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favour with this man. So he doesn't just jump ahead and say, please restore the walls of Jerusalem. He knows that God is only going to do that by using his people. And he's discerned what the first step to doing that is, to seek favour from the king. So we can learn so much from this prayer. But here's three more things which struck me. Firstly, Nehemiah is real. And we should be real when we come to God. There's no good pretending. God knows our hearts. Pretense won't get us anywhere. Secondly, Nehemiah is persistent. And he doesn't do this alone as well. He enlists a prayer group. Verse 11 shows that there are other people praying who delight in God's name. And what's more, you'll see how persistent he is by just sneaking into verse 1 of chapter 2. Because you'll see that when he does approach the king, it's the month of Nisan. When did his prayer begin? It began in the month of Kislev, which is four months earlier. So he waited four months. He waited on God until he knew through his prayer that this was the right moment to approach the king. And finally, his prayer is wonderfully effective because you'll see how in verse 11 he finishes by saying, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Well, that's almost a throwaway comment, isn't it? This man, Artaxerxes, was the most powerful man in the world. He had life and death in his fingertips. And yet, Nehemiah just says, give me favour with this man. And when we pray to God... When we spend time in the presence of God, he changes our perspective. And instead of seeing Artaxerxes as a a kind of a mountain that would be too powerful to get around or get through or what have you, God has shown him that he's just another man. And God can do anything. And prayer does that. And like Nehemiah, that gives us renewed hope and belief that those dreams and visions, our dreams and visions, can be realised. That Southgate can be transformed by the love of Jesus. That every child in care can be found a home for good. That God's kingdom will come in the places that he's laid on our hearts. This is the good news of the gospel. That we have a God who loves us. Who has proved by his love through sending his son Jesus to die for us so that we can be forgiven and set free from sin and death 
who breaks our hearts for what breaks his, just as he broke Nehemiah's, and who loves it when, like Nehemiah, we come to him with our hopes and our dreams and our visions and ask him, the God of heaven, as Nehemiah calls him, to grant us favour for those enterprises that he's laid on our hearts. Amen.